I am Pastor Michael. We are doing a sermon series in the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a set of fairly detailed laws uh, governing the daily life of Israel. And uh, the passage we're going to look at today is a fairly difficult passage. One of the toughest. Because it deals with slavery. So we're going to read the passage. It's printed for you in the bulletin. You can follow along on your screens as well. Um, This is Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 through 18. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, He shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you have let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, And the Lord your God redeemed you, therefore I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an owl and put it through his ear. An owl is um, like a little pick that you use to work leather. And put it through his ear into the door. And he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired servant he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. This is the word of God. So I have three points. Here's the outline. First, we're going to ask... Does the Bible support slavery? Does the Bible support slavery? Secondly, we're going to look at the rules of slavery. What are the Bible's rules on its practice? And then number three, the hope of the world. So first, does the Bible support slavery? As I said, this is one of the most difficult passages in the Bible because it regulates and allows for slavery. It lays down the rules for its practice and for its existence. Now, let me be clear. Nowhere in the Bible is slavery prohibited. You will find no verses that call for the emancipation and abolition of slavery. There are no passages that explicitly speak of slavery, the end of slavery as a goal that Christians should strive for. Instead, you find a series of passages in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that regulate and permit the institution of slavery. That is deeply disturbing to modern Americans, and it should. Because 
of the terrible legacy of slavery in our history, the wounds of which have still not healed, the trauma of it still haunts us today. It is really hard for us as modern people to appreciate the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade. I really encourage you to read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass or other slave narratives, and they will tell you of the savagery of the beatings. They will tell you about the cruelty of family separations so that husbands and wives, parents and children were arbitrarily ripped apart for profit. And the reason why it was so brutal is because American slavery was based on race. So that it was black Africans who were captured and enslaved and white Europeans were not. And that was justified because people thought that Africans were subhuman. They were like animals. And they didn't have human dignity and value. And so you didn't have to treat them as people. And so people wonder, how can the Bible sanction such a thing? One explanation that has been offered is that slavery in the ancient world, which is what the Bible addresses, was very different than New World slavery, you know, American slavery. Because first of all, it was not based on race or ethnicity. Anyone could become a slave. Your countrymen could become a slave. Secondly, the economics were very different. There were no large plantations, which is what made slave work so backbreaking in the New World. Third, slaves were often treated in the ancient world as valued members of the household. They could earn their own freedom. They sometimes, oftentimes held important positions. And so people will say, you're comparing apples and oranges. Because the Bible is describing good slavery. A less brutal form of slavery. Which is different than the bad slavery of the new world, of America and Brazil and the Caribbean. Now, it is true that ancient slavery was less severe and brutal. But it still doesn't get us off the hook. Because why should any form of slavery be acceptable? Let me offer you a different argument. And the person who really helped me the most in understanding this is an African-American theologian named Issa McCauley. He's a professor at Wheaton College. He wrote a book called Reading While Black, which is about the the black theological tradition. It's, It's a stimulating, fascinating book. And he faces this issue of slavery head on. And in the book, Issa McCauley asks, does the Bible support slavery? And his answer is, absolutely not. He says the whole framework of the Bible 
is opposed to slavery in every form. He says, when you absorb, when you truly receive the theology of the Bible, you will see that it dismantles and destroys the institution of slavery. So then, what do we do with passages like Deuteronomy 15, which regulates slavery? And he says that you have to understand the crucial distinction between what the Bible permits and what the Bible intends. There's an enormous difference between what the Bible permits and what the Bible intends. And the best way to to think through this is through the analogy of, of the Bible's teaching on divorce. So, please follow along, you know, let me walk you through the logic, okay? So please stay with me on this. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees confront Jesus on this question of divorce because, you see, Jesus was against divorce. He was opposed to divorce. And the Pharisees come back at Jesus and they challenge him. And they say, how can the Bible teach against divorce if Moses says that you can give a certificate of divorce to your wife and then the marriage ends. This is uh, outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 24. In other words, how can the Bible be opposed to divorce when Deuteronomy 24 regulates and lays down the rules of divorce? That's their question. Do Do you understand? Jesus' answer is brilliant. And it's the key to understanding this whole paradigm. In verse 8, this is what he says. It is because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses allowed divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, it was not so. And then Jesus goes back to Genesis 2.24, which is the Bible's definition of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so Jesus' point is that when you go back to the beginning, before the fall, before human rebellion, you will see that there was no divorce. Because human beings were not meant for divorce. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, there was marriage, but there was no divorce because marriage was intended to be permanent and unbreakable. And so then where does divorce come from? Why do we have divorce in this world? It is because of human sin. And selfishness. So that divorce is what man created, not God. Do you understand? And what Deuteronomy is doing is that it's trying to limit the harm of divorce. It's laying down the rules of due process. This is what the certificate of divorce is all about. right? You cannot get a divorce without very serious cause. And the only cause that Deuteronomy permits and Jesus permits is cases of infidelity. 
And so Deuteronomy is not saying you should get a divorce. It's not saying divorce is a good thing. It leads to human flourishing. It's great for the kids. And so let me summarize. The Bible intended for a world without divorce. But human sin created divorce. And so Deuteronomy is trying to limit the harm of divorce by laying down rules for its practice. But you don't look to Deuteronomy to teach you what God intends. You have to look at Genesis. You have to go back to the beginning. And so Esau Macaulay says, on this issue of slavery, what does Genesis say? What does Genesis teach how human beings should treat one another? And the key doctrine is the doctrine of the Imago Dei. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us create man in our image in our likeness, so that every human being bears the imprint of God. And therefore, all human beings are created with dignity and value, so that every person that you meet in this life, no matter what their station, no matter what their capacity in society, no matter how diminished they may be by poverty or illness, no matter how degraded they might become through drug abuse or other, other sins. They have an inviolable worth that comes from God. And so you must never, never mistreat any human being. And every person deserves respect, protection, and care. Because they are image bearers. And Esau Macaulay says that this doctrine of the Imago Dei is completely antithetical to the practice of slavery. This theology is absolutely incompatible with the institution of slavery. And so, and so then where does slavery come from? <laughs> Why is there slavery? Not just in the 19th century in the United States, but still with us today. In fact, there's never been more slaves in world history than right now. And the answer is slavery comes from greed, comes from lust for power. It comes from a heart of exploitation that dehumanizes people. And I love what Issa Macaulay says he says, slavery cannot exist in a world that would follow Jesus, who taught us love one another, who taught us do unto others what you would have done unto yourself. Let me pause. So that answers the question. Does the Bible support slavery? And the answer is absolutely not. The Bible is utterly opposed to slavery 
in every form? That's the answer. That's the answer. So that leads me to my second point. What do we make then of these rules on slavery? And as I said, passages like Deuteronomy 15 and there are other Old Testament passages are designed to limit, to contain the evil and the harm of slavery. And so we're going to look at our text more closely and then we're also going to look at some of the other Old Testament passages as well. So Deuteronomy 15 is about debt slavery. And actually there are two main causes of slavery in the ancient world, which is debt and warfare. Um, We're going to actually look at um, the enslavement of war captives in Deuteronomy 20 in a couple of months. But Deuteronomy 15, our text today, is about debt slavery. If you remember two weeks ago, I said that um, debt and poverty were closely linked in the ancient world. Only the poor had debts. There were no mortgages, no banks, there were no business loans. And so this was a world in which the only people who were indebted were the poor. And this was also a world in which there, were no ba- there was no bankruptcy laws. You could not just declare insolvency and walk away from your debts, but they had to be settled. You had to pay back the debt. And sometimes the debts became so enormous, they accumulated to a point of such overwhelming burden. And furthermore, if you did not have any land, or if you had already sold your land, or if your parents had sold the land, then you would have no recourse but to sell yourself into slavery. You would go to your creditors and offer yourself as a slave to settle the debt. Let me pause one more time. So you would go to your creditor and you would settle the debt through enslavement. And actually, for the most part, you wouldn't sell yourself because that would mean your family would starve. So you know what you would do? You would sell your children into slavery. And I want you to, I want you to think about that for a moment. I want you to imagine that scenario. That you are in a place of such desperation. Your family is on the brink of starvation. That you have to make an agonizing decision to sell one of your children into slavery. That was the ancient world. It was a brutal existence. And again, the Bible is not sanctioning slavery. It is trying to limit its worst abuses. And so Deuteronomy 15 says that the maximum term, the maximum length is six years and oftentimes less because every sabbatical year, every seventh year, all debts are canceled, all slaves are freed. And so the Bible prohibits lifelong slavery. No one can be held longer than six years. 
And the only condition on which a slave could continue beyond the six years is if, if, completely of their own free will, they desire to stay with their master. And the reason would be is because they are so well treated, they're so loved and so honored and so welcomed into the household as a, as a treasured member that they would voluntarily make a lifelong covenant of service. And then there's a whole ceremony outlined for that very special condition. Secondly, the law mandates that upon the release of the slave, and that would be the vast majority of cases because very few masters are that good, Upon release, the former slave is to be given generous resources to start a new life so that they're not, they're not trapped in this cycle of poverty. Verse 13 says, You shall not let him go empty-handed, but you shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your wine press. Scholars will tell you that there is no comparable law with this scope or generosity in the ancient world It is astonishing. Issa Macaulay says it is unequaled by any law in world history. And the point here is not mere compassion. The law is not simply saying be compassionate to your slaves, although that is true. But if you read the text, it's so interesting. You'll notice that the release of the slaves is rooted in a call to imitate what God had done for Israel. Look with me to verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. And so the people of Israel were to remember. They were to remember that they were once slaves in Egypt. But God set his heart on them and he loved them and then he freed them from their bondage and then God equipped them and supplied them. If you remember the story in Exodus, as the uh, Israelites were leaving, the Egyptians showered them with herds and flocks and gold because they just wanted to get rid of the people, right? Because they were so plagued. But it was God. This was God's doing so that the people of Israel can start a new life in the promised land because they were sons and daughters of God, because they were so loved by their heavenly father. And Esau Macaulay says that this logic of the Exodus completely destroys the dehumanizing and exploitative mindset that undergirds slavery, because the Bible is telling Israel Love your slaves as your fellow brothers and sisters. Listen to me. Who would enslave their brother? Who would enslave their sister? No one. No one. Don't you see? When the Apostle Paul wrote to Philemon, the letter to Philemon in the New Testament is perhaps the most significant document in the Bible to help us to understand what the Bible teaches on slavery. And what happened is that Onesimus, who is a slave, 
he ran away from his master, Philemon, who happened to be a Christian. And so Onesimus, he runs to, he runs and finds the apostle Paul to stay with him, to, to, to have shelter with him. And he hears the gospel from Paul. He converts. He becomes a Christian. And then after some time, Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with a letter. This is the letter we have in the New Testament. It is a remarkable piece of gospel persuasion. You can read it in about three minutes. I really encourage you to read it. But I wish we had time to unpack all the um, the points of it. But let me cut to the chase. In verse 15, Paul says to Philemon, listen to this. Receive Onesimus, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. As a beloved brother. You know, we want the Bible to outright abolish slavery. We want Paul to command Philemon, release your slaves. How dare you? It's wrong to have slaves. Release Onesimus immediately. But instead, Paul does something so much more profound. Because you see, the gospel transforms relationships. So that it's no longer about power and money. It's a love relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ. And I want you to know that that truth is like a seed. It's like an acorn. It doesn't seem like very much. It doesn't seem very large. But when you plant it into the ground and it takes root and then you water it and then you nurture it, over time, the whole earth will be covered in trees. That's how the gospel works. The gospel is like a seed that goes into the heart of a people And over time, it'll transform a society. Let's look at uh, the other slave laws in the Bible. Very quickly now, let me run through them. Exodus 21.20 says that there is no harsh treatment or bodily harm allowed onto slaves. And if there is any bodily harm, the slave is to be immediately granted their freedom Because their debt is paid. Furthermore, if you kill a slave, the result is is the death penalty. Because slaves are not property. They are image bearers of God and you are accountable to him. And so the, the life of the slave will be avenged. That is unprecedented in the ancient world. Deuteronomy 24 verse 7 says that kidnapping people to make them slaves is strictly forbidden, punishable by death. That law alone would have absolutely ended the Atlantic slave trade. And then consider this. This is remarkable. Deuteronomy 23 verses 15 and 16. Israel was to be a safe harbor for runaway slaves. So the law says that you cannot return a slave to their former master but you are obligated to give them shelter and care. And so what the law basically says is that if you're a slave and you can somehow manage to escape and get to Israel, 
you will be safe and protected. So that the, this law is saying that Israel was to be a sanctuary. Israel was to be this beacon of hope to the nations. Again, absolutely no parallel in the ancient world. Let's look at the New Testament. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So here's the thing. There will always be power hierarchies in this world. There will always be bosses and employees. Right? There will always be managers and staff or managers and subordinates. And what Paul is saying to bosses and to managers is treat your people, treat your employees well. Do not mistreat them because you will be accountable to God. And so it is an awesome responsibility to manage people. And I want you to know that in the end, God is not impressed by the social structures of this world. Listen to Galatians 3.28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When you give your life to Christ, it relativizes worldly positions of power. You see, we are all equal at the foot of the cross. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. There is neither slave nor free, for we are all one in Christ. That is the Bible's word on slavery. Last point, the hope of the world. I believe that Christianity is the hope of the world. And I believe that the Bible contains within it irrepressible resources for justice, hope, and peace. Christians became the first people in world history, the first people to advocate for the total abolition of slavery. Christians as early as the 4th century called for the end of slavery in the Roman Empire, people like Gregory of Nyssa. You have to understand that slavery in the ancient world was not just widespread and universal, but it was thought of as completely natural. Just as there will always be rich and poor, just as there will always be the strong and the weak, people thought there will always be, there will always be masters and slaves. That is just the natural order of things. Every civilization, every culture, Every empire in world history, without exception, without exception, has practiced slavery. And more than that, the ending of slavery was not just unthinkable and unimaginable, but it was deeply threatening to the power structures that be because it was so economically interwoven into the fabric of life. And yet it was Christians reading their Bibles in England and in America in the 18th century who fought for the end of slavery. People like William Wilberforce, Frederick Douglass, so that by 1807, after decades of struggle, 
the British Empire, at the height of their power, at great cost to themselves, they had significant um, sugar plantations in the Caribbean. They ended the slave trade, and then they followed up in 1833 by a complete abolition of the practice of slavery. The United States, as I'm sure you're also aware, 30 years followed suit with the war, with the 13th and 14th Amendments ending slavery. Some of you might say, okay, well, that's well and good. But why did it take 1,800 years for this to happen? Why did it take so long? And why was the Bible used so often to justify the practice of slavery? Which is absolutely true. If you read the writings of devout, devout Christians in the American South, people in my own tradition, people in the Reformed and Presbyterian tradition, like Robert Dabney, who wrote a very influential and significant systematic theology textbook, Robert Dabney and others wrote lengthy, theologically sophisticated arguments for the rightness of slavery, for the goodness of slavery. And that is a legacy that Christians are going to have to grapple with and come to terms with and ultimately repent of. And our denomination, the PCA, has repented of it. But I also want you to consider this. Esau Macaulay, in his book, he reflects on the miracle, just the sheer miracle of the black church in America. Because for centuries, enslaved Africans were told by their white slave masters that the Bible commanded slavery. That it was their God-given duty to be obedient, to be subservient to their masters. But when these slaves and the, and the descendants of slaves actually got their hands on the Bible, they saw within it, he says, a profound hope. They saw in it the story of a God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. And they saw this portrait of the biblical God as a, as this liberator, as a defender of the rights of the oppressed. And they saw in Christianity the basis for their dignity and hope in a culture and in a time that denied them these things. And then consider this. When Martin Luther King Jr. fought for racial justice in the 1950s and 60s, it was not in spite of Christianity, it was because of Christianity. Dr. King was calling on white supremacists to read their own Bibles because he believed that the Bible is the key to black equality. If you read his speeches, if you look at his writings, It is saturated with the Bible. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. That's Amos 5.24. And consider that so many of the civil rights 
leaders like men like Ralph Abernathy, C.K. Steele, were black ministers steeped in scripture so that the Bible was the primary ideological source for this radical idea of nonviolent protest. You know, it's a remarkable thing, right? If you think about the civil rights protest, why didn't an oppressed people rise up and strike back in violence? Where did this idea of non-violent protest come from? This idea that you can firmly stand against unjust laws, but without returning evil and hatred. Where did this idea come from? It came from the Bible. It came from Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Several years ago, I, I read this remarkable book by David Chapel called The Stone of Hope, He talks about the theological underpinnings of the civil rights movement. It is astonishing. This is the gift of Christianity to the modern world. So much more could be said, but let me close with a meditation on the gospel. I want you to know that the gospel reverses and overturns the power dynamics that support slavery so that the old categories of master and slave are turned upside down. You know, it's really interesting that if you read the New Testament, the Apostle Paul constantly refers to himself as a slave of Christ. The opening line of the epistle to the Romans says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. You know, the the Greek words there is doulos Christos. And modern translations will try to soften that by saying a servant of Christ. But you know, the Greek word doulos literally means slave. And so Paul deliberately calls himself a slave, repeatedly. Why? Why would he take this word that in the ancient world occupied the lowest position. There was nothing lower than a slave. Why would Paul do this? It's interesting that um, in our Deuteronomy passage, it talks about this unique and very special situation where a master is so good. The master is so good that even though the slave is now free to go, his debt is released, he voluntarily, of his own free will, binds himself to his master. And then it describes this ceremony where his ears are pierced to the wooden frame of a door to indicate that he is not his own, but he belongs to his master. I want you to know that that passage, Deuteronomy 15:17, is a picture of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus Christ made himself nothing. Verse 7, taking the form of a servant. The Greek word there is doulos. So that Jesus, the Prince of Heaven, he humbled himself as a slave. He became totally obedient. He said, not my will, but yours be done. 
And then his ceremony is not that his ears were pierced, but it was his hands and his feet. And not upon a wooden door, but upon a wooden cross. And then he laid down his life that he might redeem a people. The word redeem in the Bible means to purchase out of slavery. Don't you see it was an exchange. Jesus Christ took our place on the cross. And so here is the gospel. If Jesus Christ did that for us, we can do the same for others. This is why Paul calls himself a slave. Because when you follow Christ, the servant role is no longer a shameful, lowly role, but it is an exalted role. It is a place of honor because through it we imitate Christ. You see, inside the church, inside the church, the role of a servant is the highest status. Out there in the world, Servants are exploited and crushed. So it's not safe to be a servant in this world. But inside the church, we are a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. And so Galatians 5.13 says, Through love, serve one another. The word serve there again, do loss. We are to do loss one another. So that in the church, service is transformed by love into joy and honor. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, this is a difficult teaching. And um, we want to grapple with the painful history of slavery, honestly, without mincing our words. And we also want to come to terms with the fact that so many Christians participated, justified, and defended slavery. But we also see in the Bible this beautiful message of hope that we are redeemed. We are redeemed people, and we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And Our law is to love one another as you have loved us. And Lord, may we love each other so well that the world will say, surely God is alive among you. Help us to treat each other with dignity and respect, with compassion and care. And in so doing, we might be a beacon of hope to the nations. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.